You've just listened to chanting in Punjabi from a protest that was held in Canada on December 12, 2020 in the city of Toronto. Now, these protests are against the Indian government's new laws concerning agriculture. Three farm bills have ignited huge protests in India against the government of Prime Minister Narendra Modi and the Bharatiya Janata Party, which is the ruling party in India. In recent days, tens and hundreds of millions of farmers and workers have taken to protest in India, especially in its agricultural heartlands, of which Punjab is quite prominent. And of course, the Indian Punjabi diaspora is spread far and wide in Canada, in the United States, Britain, Australia as well, and they're all protesting. The Modi government's farm bills are promising reforms which can solve India's long-standing agrarian crisis. What is India's agrarian crisis? Different people are going to tell you different things. One symptom of it is that tens of thousands of farmers have committed suicide over the last couple of decades, usually because they're unable to repay very heavy loans. In general, they can't repay those loans because agriculture is not sustainable for small farmers. To put it simply, prices of inputs are too high. Stuff like fertilizers, stuff like seeds, hybrid seeds cost too much, but the prices of outputs what they're producing are too low they're not fetching the price they'd like on the markets so you have farmers who keep going into debt now if on one hand you have these small farmers who are facing a lot of problems on the other side you do have richer farmers who are also facing problems but they're able to do relatively well or quite well in many instances because they have access to capital now these rich farmers are a lot fewer there's a lot less of them than there are smaller farmers but they're important they play an important role it's these upwardly mobile farmers who were able to take advantage of green revolution technologies which were introduced in the 1960s this new seed varieties chemical fertilizers and they were able to combine them with mechanization that's stuff like tractors or mechanical harvesters and mechanical threshers so that they could dramatically increase their yield per acre or yield per hectare however you want to measure it the problem is that poor farmers or relatively poor farmers were generally unable to afford these new technologies and so they've either lost their lands because they're uncompetitive or they've just managed to hang on even the rich farmers have faced problems partly because the intensive use of fertilizer and water that's required for the kind of green revolution production has resulted in a lot of issues basically poisoning the land with chemical runoffs, increased salinity or saltiness and waterlogging. But that's a longer conversation. Nowadays, corporations, international and multinational corporations have also contracted with a lot of richer farmers to produce certain crops. In Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, when I was doing my field work, I saw for example tobacco companies who were contracting out to farmers to grow the crop and then those tobacco companies would take them and process them. Pepsi does this with Pakistani and Indian farmers for potatoes so that they can make their Lay's chips. But not all farmers can enter into these contracts because they have a very specific technical and quality requirements which requires capital, requires money. And if you don't have it, you can't access it, you're shut out. So smaller farmers or poorer farmers tend not to benefit from this kind of contract farming. In fact, the problems that small farmers face in India are not quite the same, but they're also not very different from the problems that farmers face in Pakistan. Farming has become quite precarious, especially since the 1980s. It was always precarious, but even more so since the 80s and 90s when governments in South Asia started to take back subsidies from farming. That's much of what made it increasingly unaffordable. farmers have protested over the years though there's been farmers movements and they've managed to win concessions from governments so it's not as easy as saying governments have gotten rid of subsidies but the problem is that these subsidies tend to benefit manufacturers of agricultural inputs like fertilizers or they benefit larger or richer farmers and don't really reach poorer or smaller farmers so then there's been a lot of a push from proponents of a so-called modern agriculture who are talking about the reason that agriculture is in crisis is because it's unproductive and it requires an infusion of technology which is expensive to do that they say that we should free the agrarian markets a great deal 
We need to reduce or end subsidies. We need to end a lot of government intervention that's preventing corporations from coming in and investing in agriculture. Corporations have the capital. They can bring that in. And that way, we'll be able to have more productive agriculture. Now, that's the kind of thing that Modi's farm bills may do. But do these farm bills improve the situation for farmers in India? What exactly do they contain and what impacts will they have on India's agricultural system? Welcome to Introduction to Political Economy, where we talk about the interrelations between politics and economics. And we also talk about how political economy can encompass a lot more than just politics and economics. I'm your host, Naman Ali. I'm an assistant professor of political economy at the Lahore University of Management Sciences in Pakistan. To talk about the political economy of the farmer protests in India, I spoke to an old friend of mine, Dr. Ritika Shrimali, who teaches at Huron College at the University of Western Ontario in Canada. Her book, The Corporatization of Indian Agriculture, The Case of Contract Farming in India, will be coming out with Palgrave Macmillan in 2021. Let's hear from Dr. Ritika. Uh, my research interests are in agrarian studies, political economy of development, social movements um, with some focus on uh, peasant struggles and food struggles. I'm born and brought up in India and uh, I uh, was studying geography during my undergrad, my master's, my MPhil. And uh, I was uh, constantly looking at poverty around me. Uh, I was concerned about social issues and I uh, was sort of struggling with the language. I did not know how to explain things. I did not know how to make sense of what I'm seeing around me. Um, one of the incidents that really struck me was, I think I must be in grade five or grade six. Uh, and I read this, there was this news item that, you know, there was these people in one of the poorest districts in Odisha in India uh, who had eaten poisonous mango kernels and they died because of that. And I kept wondering to myself that how can you not have food to eat and how can the situation be so dire that you have to eat dry, poisonous mango kernels in order to survive. And that sort of stayed with me for a very long time. And uh, I was trying to find explanations and I guess it just wasn't working out while I was in India. And I decided to study further and I came to Canada. And uh, I started talking to my um, uh, teachers, my professors, my supervisors, and they kept suggesting that read more, see what kind of questions are important. Um, and I started going through these specific uh, magazines where I think one of the issues that stood out was the issue of agrarian crisis, that the farmers are committing suicides, that there is always this thing of uh, BT Brinjal coming into the picture. So there was always these smaller uh, news items that were out there which I wanted to make sense of and I said okay I want to do something with respect to the corporate capital that is entering Indian agriculture and I want to figure out what is happening to small-scale farmers and I guess from there the research questions started emerging um, case study started becoming more clearer and uh, that's how uh, I came to this understanding of looking at contract farming um, and uh, work through that. So this question of corporate capital and small farmers, that's very much relevant, I think, to what's going on right now in India. There's, uh, yeah. I just came back from, now in downtown Toronto, there's obviously this Punjabi diaspora here. Uh, yeah. Uh, Indian Punjabi, uh, especially, and a lot of Sikh uh, people here. And, and they're, it's really interesting. They're very, very angry here yeah. in Toronto. They're in Vancouver and London. So never mind in mm. India where there's uh, apparently hundreds of millions of people are, are yeah. protesting this and especially this, the states of Punjab, Haryana, UP, mm. like a lot of mm. Northern India is, is up in arms about these new farm ordinances or farm bills that the Modi, Modi uh, Sarkar has uh, introduced. So what, is what 
are they protesting? Who is protesting? Um, okay, so essentially what happened, um, so these three ordinances uh, came out in June 2020, and later on they became um, parliamentary acts in September. Um, and since September, essentially, uh, the, um, the furor actually started. Um, and of course, there were these questions around how these laws are becoming enacted, how are they getting enacted, what is happening. So there were questions around that. But essentially what they're doing is that they're looking at three aspects in these particular cases. One is around um, how should agricultural commodities be marketed? Uh, then there are questions around at what price should these commodities be sold? And then there are questions around what kind of agriculture produce should be considered essential commodities and which kind should not be considered essential commodities. So essentially there are these three laws that people are protesting about. Okay, um, so m maybe we can we can try and go through each of these in turn. Like when you say marketing, you're talking about if I'm a farmer and mm -hmm. I grow some wheat, then who will, you know, how do I get it to the market? And where is that market? Who controls that market? Like a market is a physical thing. It's not just an abstract idea that we have in our heads. Right. They are about 2,500 marketing spaces. They're called Agriculture Produce Marketing Committees. Um, and uh, these are the first opportunity for the farmers to go and sell their commodities. Uh, so they can sell cereals, they can sell pulses, edible oil seeds, fruits, vegetables. And um, there's also a market to sell goat, sheep. All these kind of things are sold in these agriculture markets. Essentially, there are these commission agents, which are also known as artiyas. They're also known as the middlemen who buy from the farmer. And then these middlemen, in turn, sell the product to the state. Typically, in this marketing committee, uh, you have auction halls, you have these way bridges, you have go down. So there's an entire infrastructure in place for the farmers to come eat some food, sell their products, and then go back. So what the new act is really doing is that um, it is trying to destroy these marketing mandis. It is trying to destroy these spaces where farmers can sell their products. Uh, so just to give you an example, um, let's say there's a farmer who um, grows rice. And he knows that when he'll go to the mandi, there is a price that is fixed by the state. So if he is able to sell even one quintal of rice, he knows that the fixed price for this rice is, let's say, 1,700 rupees. So he knows that this is the fixed amount I am going to get once I'm able to sell it to the mandi. Now what this new law is doing, this new act is really doing is, it is taking that power away from the farmer. So when the market will not exist, anybody can go and say, well, where will you go and sell your rice? I can offer you, I can offer to buy your one quintal of rice for 1100 rupees. And someone else might say, okay, I can give you 12. Has to decide where will you go. If there is an option of uh, choosing, then he will choose, but not all farmers have the space, uh, have the bandwidth to um, to pick and choose. They don't have the option to uh, weigh their uh, who's paying me more, how are they paying me, and they are the ones who are going to get uh, left stranded by the end of the day. So just to bring the, the conversation sure. back a little bit, you were sure. you're saying if the government, so these these. Uh, Marketing spaces, these actual physical infrastructure you're talking about, mm -hmm. that is government owned and operated. And if you get yeah. rid of that, or if you allow yeah. alternatives to proliferate, like you can have mm -hmm. like multiple markets where people can sell their stuff. The issue with that is, you know, in theory, it sounds great. In theory, it's like, okay, that market is offering me 1100 This mm -hmm. market is offering me 2000 So I'm going to go to the, the market that's offering me 2000 That's good for me as a farmer. The issue that we don't realize mm. is mm. transportation costs, it's very expensive. Not everybody has vehicles to take their produce to markets. Not everybody has the, right. the money for gas patrol to just be like, I'm going to go yeah. to multiple markets looking for the best price. Mm. Yeah. 
Is that is that part of the, the issue here? Yes, it is. I think if these markets are completely um, taken away from the picture, uh, all the classes of farmers are going to get impacted, um, as well as even the middlemen are also going to get impacted. But the immediate and the most severe acts will actually be falling on the small and marginal farmers because of the reasons that you just mentioned, because it's about transportation, it's about uh, who will carry the, um, uh, who will be able to stay at the Monday for four or five days to get the right price, how long can they keep trying it, how long can they keep waiting for the right price. So the uncertainty in what they will get by the end of the day when they have their harvested products with them um, is something that people are struggling with, the farmers are struggling with. Because uh, again, in, in context of India, we're really looking at the majority of the farmers, uh, small scale farmers who uh, don't have the infrastructure to uh, spend in transportation. They don't have the infrastructure to stay in these mandis for a long time period because they're barely surviving. So, so in that sense, it becomes um, an issue for the marginal farmers for sure. Now, the large scale farmers are also getting impacted because of this, because there are two things that are happening. One is that large scale farmers, and when I'm saying large scale capitalist farmers, they are typically the ones who would have access to at least 50 to 80 acres of land at least and when I'm saying access uh, I'm not saying ownership so they might have rented the land from somewhere else they might have their mm. own about 25 acres they, but they but they're relatively rich farmers um, some of them might have leased the land from the farmers who are actually um, the landlords who are living in Canada right now <laughs> uh, so uh, so in that sense there are these are farmers yes they have they have their own cost of uh, they have their own expenditure they have to pay for the rent of the land they have to pay the labor so they have their own cost of production in mind now we're talking about a scenario where they're saying that they have planned that out of these 50 acres of land that they have they were growing 35 acres of land for was for wheat and rest 20 acres, they're now willing to experiment or trying to figure out newer avenues to sell their products and getting into these contract, um, contract farming kind of things. And now suddenly they're in this situation where they still want the surety of the fixed market price. They still want that, I want this money that the government had guaranteed, but I also want to experiment. So I want best of both worlds. And what they're in a situation in right now is that their best of both worlds are not going to exist because now they realize that they might just have to hang around only with the corporates because if the state is going to take them away, they will be at the uh, beck and call of the corporate corporations and, and they've dealt with how um, uh, these uh, intensive forms of agriculture can be resource draining. Uh, they've been through their phase of green revolution. So they're really, want to be in a situation where they can pick and choose what they want to do but suddenly they feel they are in a position where you know it might collapse everything might collapse and you might not have any other options so in that sense um, it's becoming tricky for um, both the classes of farmers so i think this then takes us to a question of the price support mm -hmm. um, you know one of the things you said is that they're trying to get rid of a guaranteed price for produce. In fact, this is a big debate in Pakistan also. Mm -hmm. Should the minimum support price, the government will say to farmers that if you grow this much wheat, in India it's a quintal, which is about mm -hmm. 100 kilograms. 100 kilos, in, yeah. in Pakistan it's a man, which is yeah. about 40 kilograms. Mm -hmm. uh, and we will offer you a guaranteed price for this, regardless mm -hmm. of the, the international world market price of wheat is or of um, this, you know, other crops are, the government will offer a minimum support price. Mm -hmm. So if, uh, if the price goes above the support price, great, mm -hmm. you can sell it. Sorry, you can sell it to the international market. But yeah. if it goes below that, we've got your back. Right, right. And they want to get rid of this also? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. They, so they are going to get rid of the minimum support price by getting rid of the markets. Okay, so they would say, we are not getting rid of minimum support price. But where will the farmers get the minimum support price from when the markets will not exist? Hmm. Right. So it's so. So I know Modi government has been saying repeatedly, but we are not getting getting rid of MSP. 
okay, fine, you're not. But how will the farmers go and access it? Market was their only source of getting that um, guaranteed price. Um, and that is something that sort of in the garb of uh, options and freedom to the farmer, uh, that is getting sidelined completely. Uh, so they are getting rid of the MSPs, uh, not directly, but indirectly through the abolition of uh, mandis, the state-sponsored mandis. But why, why is this a bad thing? So in Pakistan right now, we have a wheat mm. crisis. We have mm. this issue uh, where the price of wheat has shot up. Mm -hmm. We have an issue where the minimum support price that the government offers is too high. And so we can't get wheat on the international market, which would be cheaper for the consumer. Mm. Okay, so it is bad um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, let's look at uh, not the consumers, but the farmers as consumers to begin with. Okay. Uh, now we are trying to introduce policies in uh, such neoliberal agrarian policies in a context where uh, 60 to 70% of the economy is dependent on these farming communities or the farming communities are the essential uh, backbone of the country. We are introducing, and out of those um, um, farming communities, uh, majority is the small and the marginal uh, landholders. We are trying to have such policies where it is going to become increasingly difficult for these farmers to sustain themselves. Now, if their only way of earning bread and butter um, uh, no pun intended, but is to grow wheat and sell it to the market and so that by the end of the harvest season, they're able to have maybe 6,000 Indian rupees so that they can take care of their next six months. What, what do they have as an option? The second part of the question becomes in terms of um, uh, an, an argument that uh, a lot of scholars like Utsapat Naik and others have started giving is, which is in terms of uh, the food security of the country, which is that if everybody is going to start growing these export-related agriculture products, then what are we going to produce for ourselves? What are we going to eat for ourselves? And this is something that makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's an argument uh, that uh, has a lot of weight, and it is also a fairly nationalist argument as well. Um, but I've, uh, I've talked to a few uh, corporate people and, and their concern was, why should we bother about food security? You want people to eat food. I will guarantee you that if we move towards more corporate farming, let the farmers grow what the market wants to grow. I will make sure that we have enough wheat and rice from America that your people can eat. And that food might be cheaper for you if you're mm. importing rice and wheat for the people um, from America for Indian people. So, so access to food is not really an issue. You can still access food. But the question is, why are we creating such policies where the livelihood of these people is going to get compromised? And, and connected to that is the issue that Let's assume a situation we don't want people to remain in agriculture. Fair enough. Let only few people do agriculture stuff. Uh, let, let everybody else should be able to get out of it and do something else. But where do they have the options? Do, have we created infrastructure where these people who want to leave agriculture can go somewhere, get training, get jobs, move into cities? Do we have education facilities for them? Do we have health facilities for them? Have we created that chain for people to leave agriculture respectfully and move on with their lives? But we haven't. So what we're doing with these kind of laws is we are just, we're just getting rid of things which we can't handle. We're just uh, blatantly disrespecting people who, uh, who have no means. Um, and, uh, and that I feel very strongly about, I guess. So, right. So it's like, you know, leave agriculture, go to the yeah. city, but where's yeah. the industry? Where's the factory? Yeah. Yeah. Where's the, you know, even we have, uh, well-educated people who have MAs, BAs, oh, double no BAs. Jobs. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. what, what are people going to do? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
but you know, there's there's a different argument that might come from the neoliberal or market uh, pro market side. They might mm. say, look, you know, fine, the price of wheat is low, so we'll mm. import it. Mm. But you can you can then grow a crop whose prices is, is going to be good. You can grow mm. you know the potatoes that Pepsi uh, PepsiCo uh, contracts these farmers to create mm. to to grow the kind of potatoes that they use in their chips, right? Lace, right, right, yeah. Or yeah. Um, or any you know whatever is uh, fetching a high price on the international market, you can orient right. your crop toward that. What's what's the issue? Right. Um, so issue with that is that uh, and that's something that there was a I mean. Uh, the instances are still few, but since it's a growing trend now in India, and now it's going to be growing a lot more, uh, is the question of overproduction. So what was happening was that a lot of farmers had started growing potatoes for Lay's, for Pepsi, uh, for their uh, Lay's chips. Um, and uh, they say it's potatoes and you can eat it, but actually these are different kinds of potatoes. They have a lot more sugar content. They are of a specific texture because that's good enough for the crispy chips that they need to make. So they're actually not really good in terms of the nutrient content um, for um, for people to consume. Now, all the farmers will start growing these potatoes because that's the only other option that they might have. And suddenly you would have so many potatoes around you that the company will say, well, I only have a requirement of 100 quintals and well, too bad if you have so many of them, you'll dump it in the Monday or you, you dump it on to the streets because the farmers don't even have the means to take it to the Monday or take it to the company because the company reserves the right to say no. Um, mm. I, I don't need it or oh, no, no, it's not the right size. They can be as picky as they want. Um, but even if we assume they're not picky, even if we assume that um, they will be fair, the question is if their requirement of their uh, factory is to only have, um, just using an arbitrary figure, 100 quintals for this particular season, they'll say, you guys have grown too much. We guaranteed you a price of four rupees for um, a quintal. Uh, but you know what? There's so much. I'm only going to give you two rupees for the for the potatoes that you've produced. And now, what do we do? Because we had this guaranteed buyer, but this guaranteed buyer suddenly has so many options to choose from, and he's fixing his prices the way he wants to. And so, at that point, you start saying that even the rich farmers who who are choosing to go with this kind of corporate farming, who have the luxury to choose are also going to get eventually if the trend continues and if I think it will continue, um, it will be a big squeeze on their pockets as well because the the freedom that we think they have right now will be taken away from them eventually. So maybe they'll say, okay, next year I will not contract with Pepsi. I will only contract with Satnam Agro Foods. They, they are good with us. Next year Satnam will say, okay, you know what? Um, I'll take care of you this year, but the year after something else will happen. Once you have these private players who are going by uh, what the consumers want, who are going by the kind of profits they want, um, this is just a raw material for them and they will procure it at the cheapest of costs possible. So, um, right. And I think the, in, in Pakistan also, the other issue with that, not just hmm. in India, but also in Pakistan is that corporate, like uh, PepsiCo or other big corporations, they prefer to contract with larger or rich farmers. Hmm. On average in Pakistan, I think, uh, at least in parts of Punjab, hmm. the, uh, the farmers that they contract with have hmm. 68 acres on hmm. average, hmm. which is, you know, I would, I imagine that nine, more than 95% of landholders in Pakistan do not have 68 acres. Mm, right. So mm. that's a very small, thin slice of people that you're actually contracting with. Right. So if other farmers, the smallholders and marginal farmers are told, hey, go figure out what you know corporations want or go mm. figure out what the international market wants. Mm. I think that's a big, that's a big, the other thing about the international market is, look, I, I grow my crop today. Mm-hmm. It's going to be ready in four months, five months. Right. And I don't right. know what the prices are going to be at that time. Absolutely. I don't yeah. know if, uh, you know, Barish uh, Vajayagi, if there's going to be an, a hailstorm, right. if my crop is going to go. So there's a lot of uncertainty in agriculture, actually. It's not, it's not that 
yeah. uh, straightforward also. Right, right, right. So just to add to that, I think um, your point about this um, contract farmers going with large scale farmers is true. And I think eventually that will, that is how it will be working out. But right now what's happening in India is quite interesting. So with respect to contract farming, they do social land consolidation. Now the farmers in Punjab um, uh, are in the state of once bitten twice shy, right? They have, they have experienced green revolution, the best of it and the worst of it. Uh, they, they understand what it means to uh, intensify agriculture production, the cost it's going to incur um, and the returns it would yield. So they are extremely cautious of how they want to experiment with this new kind of contract farming. So when an agent from a Pepsi or a Satnam Agro or somewhere else from McCain goes in and says, hey, you, we want to contract 50 acres from you, they'll say, sorry, we're not interested in your deal. Then they'll say, okay, fine, forget 50 acres. What about 10 acres of land? Um, just as an experiment. So, okay, so 10 acres from one farmer, 10 acres from another farmer, five from somewhere else. In that sense, they will have the target of 100 acres of land, maybe from 50 to 60 farmers. Okay, the way they're going to, or the way they break down their cost in terms of the seeds, because they say in order to do this, you have to take the seeds from this company at this cost. You have to take the chemicals from this company at this cost. So they have worked it out in terms of how their, um, their backend value chain is going to work out for them so that we know that for a given 10 acres of land, your cost of production, including the cost of labor, uh, which we think you should be paying at least 100 rupees per day, uh, your cost of production should be uh, 22,000 rupees per acre. And we guarantee you that out of this, your profit is going to be per acre, you're going to earn, um, let's say 10,000 rupees or 20,000 rupees per acre as your profit. So once the contract is getting made, these are the calculations that the agents come up with. So what you have to say is that, do I agree with this profit rate or do mm. I want more? Uh, and of course, it's in their hand to say, well, I will not be paying 100 rupees to my labor. I will only pay 50 rupees. But that's their internal business. The company doesn't need to get bothered with that. Uh, so in that sense, what this contract farming has enabled is this possibility of some of those big farmers to experiment with contract farming. Again, they are still the ones who have the luxury to experiment. They're still not the ones who have one acre of land because mm. you still need to be able to invest into, um, um, into the infrastructure. Um, but that's how they're doing it. And this is also in some sense in a, a response to uh, the big dispossession debate that had been happening uh, because the farmers are getting dispossessed, dispossessed because of the companies that are coming in with all the special economic zones that were getting created. Um, I remember a long time back, there was this one uh, report where the finance minister had said, we want good for the, we want good for the agriculture sector, but we cannot remove the tillers from the land. Mm -hmm. So figure out a strategy so that the tailors are not removed from the, from the land. So there is this understanding that the moment we're going to remove them from the land, it's going to become a bigger furor. So let's find strategies where we can still work together. Everybody can benefit. Um, but the dispossession doesn't happen directly, like the way we understand it. Uh, but the way it is happening now with respect to uh, the way corporatization is getting uh, more and more entrenched into the way we are doing things, the dispossession is still happening, but it's happening at a more systemic level. So people are just leaving their land because they have nowhere else to go. Or they only this is their only resource. They're going to sell the land because agriculture is becoming extremely um, uh, expensive to pursue. Mm. And so they're going to leave slowly. So the, the, the inequality between the peasantry, as we call it, is increasing quite drastically. Um, now, there's this one third thing that you mentioned, which was about essential and non-essential commodities. What does right. that come down to? Uh, so this is again part of their uh, larger plan of 
uh, having policies that are more um, uh, that cater to the export oriented um, agriculture and to promote more uh, agri exports really so um, crops so cereals oil seeds all these uh, were part of essential commodities act now what this act essentially means is that you that the government has the right to decide that these are essential commodities and we will stop its export we this is meant for domestic use it's a case of um, natural disaster it's a case of some kind of uh, crisis and we need to be able to safeguard these essential commodities for the people of this country now by denotifying some of these commodities what they're saying is that it is up for uh, world world price fluctuation so when it is no longer part of essential commodities you are taking it away from that closed um, uh, private domain, which was meant for the uh, security of the people, uh, in opening it up to the market, uh, and you say, okay, we'll keep monitoring it, but right now these all these things are um, available for um, um, export things. Now, one of the items in this essential commodities is uh, oil seeds. And now, increasingly, as we are talking about climate change, as we are talking about uh, green sustainable fuel and all those kind of things. Uh, there is a lot of uh, instances and specifically through contract farming, farmers are being encouraged to grow jatropha, which is an oil seed um, and more um, oil seed uh, based uh, production, uh, which means that you are now catering again to um, a biofuel um, lobby of uh, corporations which want to grow more um, uh, these export related uh, products export related agriculture commodities so that you know they they're part of that kind of a chain so in that sense essential commodities is um, loosening the grip uh, which was there for safeguard of the people and it's opening it up to the larger world capital world market really right so you take more and more things off of so uh, uh, these these essential commodities are offered minimum support prices also? Uh, these were also part of minimum support prices, yeah. Okay, so yeah. You're, you're slowly taking these things off yeah. and then you, you say, leave it up to the world market to fulfill yeah. your needs of these things. That's right, yeah. Um, but then the issue with that is if the, f the price fluctuations on the international market uh, go the wrong way, yeah, then mm -hmm. you will be exposed to food insecurity on a, on a national level. Right, right. Actually, this is something Utsa Patnayakal was also talking about, mm -hmm. that the current system is, is uh, a response to the food insecurity under British colonialism that led to famine, that led to all of these problems. And mm -hmm. um, that now when Modi, etc., are undoing that, they're basically mm -hmm. undoing the food security of the country also. That's right. Yeah. So um, in case of India, um, after independence, we started following these national five-year plans, uh, started creating these national five-year plans. Um, and um, uh, self-sustenance uh, was an important part. Food self-sustenance was an important part of these five-year plans. Um, and to be able to grow your own food, to be able to eat your own food, and everybody has access to that food was an essential part of how the Nehruvian government was sort of envisioning development of the country. Um, so in that sense, farmers will grow. We will safeguard farmers through these minimum support prices. We will have our public distribution system and we will offer ration cards. We will monitor how people are eating, what they're eating. So there was a sense of we will take care of things or we will take care of how people uh, will access food. Um, so that was definitely uh, the way things had been going on for at least uh, 50, 50 odd years. Uh, and the fact that the planning commission has been completely um, annulled um, instead of planning commission now we have a new niti ayog as an institution so what the modi government has done is essentially undermine whatever was done in the last 50 years and redoing things in their own way with their own vision um, which mind you is really not very different from the way uh, 
the previous governments had also functioned. So there was the the beginning of corporatization had actually started in the 1990s itself. Mm. Um, um, so so really, Modi is just moving the uh, train further down. Um, but yeah, his onslaught becomes more direct because he's doing so many other things. But uh, but yeah, so he so there is and just to go back to your point that whatever was done in order to preserve the the food security to preserve the uh, national food um, uh, uh, food development that is constantly getting questioned um, and expanded and more and more players are getting introduced into it so the the responsibility that the state had towards its people now that responsibility has been shifted away and given to the corporates. Uh, so in well, that sense, it's moving away. This is an in- interesting point. So if this is being done, and a lot of people, uh, I think yourself included, argue that really the intention behind these bills is to make things easier for corporates, what is in it for corporations? What do they get out of it? They get access to cheap raw materials. It's another avenue for them to accumulate their capital. There are finite forms through which you can accumulate things. And agriculture was one area where there was hesitation in going because it's, it's unpredictable, it's weather dependent, nobody wants to dirty their hands. So there was nothing in it for the corporations in the beginning to get into, um, get into the space. But because of uh, this, this so much uh, push towards rural development, rural development, let's find ways to develop rural areas. The, the question gets reworked into, are we talking about development of rural areas? Are we talking about development that goes from rural areas and sustains something else? So that gets diverted. Uh, and so with this kind of contract farming kind of initiatives where um, they get a lot of support um, and financial support from the government as well in terms of subsidies, in terms of uh, tax cuts, in terms of um, uh, cheap land on lease to uh, experiment with some kind of greenhouse uh, um, cases. So there's a lot of incentive to try things out. Mm. Um, And... uh, and if there is some investment and more incentive, so it's it's a it's a win-win as they call it. So why not? If we don't have to worry about the cost of the land, because you know what India is, the people can get angry and they might ask us to leave the country at some other time. So okay, we don't want to invest in the land. Uh, we don't want to dirty the land because I'm not a farmer. I'm not supposed to till the soil. My job is to sell chips. And if I can sell chips by getting everything else in place, then where is the harm? Uh, and and they say everybody is winning because farmer is winning. The companies that are selling the seeds and the chemicals and everything else, they are winning. The banks have a mandate to do a priority sector lending. So they have to do a check mark in their balance sheets that we are supporting farmers we are supporting mm. agriculture and so by promoting contract farming they are supporting agriculture um, now if if it is supporting the farmer that's another story but it is getting checkmarked that they are supporting the farmers uh, the farmers um, the banks prefer to give the money to pepsi than to give it to the farmer in hand because they say that i trust pepsi more than i trust maninder singh on the farm because I know the balance sheet of Pepsi. I know that if I'm going to give 100 rupees to Pepsi, they are definitely going to give me back my 100 plus whatever interest is needed. But if I give it to Maninder Singh, he's going to come back and say, my my farm is lost or something has happened and I might not get back my money. Hmm. So I'm going to trust the Pepsi um, and the Pepsi will make sure that through their buyback rates that they fix for the for the farmer, they have incorporated all the costs that need to be spent in. They have incorporated the interest that needs to be paid. So they will get the money one way or the other. And uh, we will get back our money from, from Pepsi. So it works out for them. It works out for them without having to do anything. 
Um, right. So, so, and that's also where then the privatization of banks comes in because yeah. the state yeah. no longer has any responsibility to give these kinds of developmental loans to mm. small farmers and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, or if they do, and if they don't repay, then, you know, you can, you can be very strict with them and, and that kind of stuff. Right. right. Um, there's something interesting about this is that there's also, well, there's already an international dimension when you have mm-hmm. multinational corporations like PepsiCo or uh, these other kind of corporations coming in, they're already, uh, it's one thing to say we want to contract farmers to grow potatoes for our chips. Mm. There's others where they all have already in many ways cornered the seed market. Mm-hmm. So in, ba- in Pakistan in 2014, the seed law uh, was amended to uh, uh, make inter- intellectual property rights stronger. That's part of it because these are patented seeds and hybrid seeds and that kind of stuff. But it certainly made it easier for multinationals. Mm. Um, the other interesting dimension of this that's the international dimension is that all of the rich countries in the world Mm. america canada european countries japan Mm. heavily heavily subsidize their agricultural sectors Mm. but when it comes to countries in the third world in the global Mm. south they tell Mm. us stop subsidizing agriculture stop subsidizing your farmers don't you know uh, uh, open yourself up to the international market yeah. What is what is this go and why do our intellectuals go along with that? Why are intellectuals <laughs> like, hey, you know what? It's a great idea. Let's open ourselves up to the international market. Let's yeah. do exactly the thing that these the, the rich countries are not doing. Right. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean it is so apparent, uh, yet uh, people don't see this kind of discrepancy. And I guess if you just look at the history of development of development. Um, uh, uh, development of capitalism or development of the idea of development, you start seeing that uh, how there is this, this so much of dependence on the third world f- to make your profit. And we've had so many uh, theories to understand, to critique, to do everything to make sense of the world we are living in. Yet, one way or the other, we keep falling back into that same thing of uh, 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 that this is going to work. And I think one way to understand this would be to look at the class composition of the state because we they are not, uh, they are from the same class of people who are the corporates, who are uh, the, the people who are representing us through the state apparatus are the ones who are also in close connections with the same um, corporate elite. So in that sense, uh, it is not uh, it is not shocking but it is upsetting as well that it's it's still continuing i guess and so. i think that's the interesting thing also about these mobilizations um, yeah. is that you have these elites in in pakistan in india who are international elites in many ways right mm-hmm. like our our, our current uh, uh, finance minister or somebody who was sworn in sworn in as an interim finance minister, uh, mm. Hafiz Sheikh, used to work for, used to work for the World Bank. Mm. Like these are internationally circulating elites. But yeah, what's yeah. interesting about what I saw today in Toronto mm. was that it's not just the elites now who are circulating. You've, mm. you, these kind of, some of these rich farmers or middle farmers mm. uh, have migrated here mm. and they maintain yeah. deep ties. Yeah. Um, and they're now acting as a counterforce. Mm. Uh, and actually to Modi, it's, it's quite remarkable. I think this is the biggest opposition that Modi has received hmm. uh, and the, the BJP government has received. Um, hmm. And uh, what do you think are the prospects for then alliances between these, these tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of farmers? The Modi government has uh, obviously what it's done in Kashmir is, is uh, uh, I, I think, you know, progressive Indians are, are very ashamed at that. Hmm. Um, w- the way that Modi government has singled out Muslims through the citizenship mm. amendment mm. bill. Mm. Uh, it's, it's created, do you see that these constituencies who are being marginalized by the, the Modi government can mm. come together? Or do you think that there's a lot of uh, political obstacles to that? Mm. Um, I've, been, I've been reading about the kinds of messages that are coming from from these protests and 
the vision of these leaders is uh, is hopeful to say the least i mean i like the fact that in their while sitting on the stages while making their speeches they are able to connect to the um, fact that the modi government has so many political prisoners that they need to be released uh, they've talked about so many other issues that might not be related to the direct farming issues right now that that you see that there is a sense of solidarity you see that there is a there is a way to bring people together and the people um can potentially come together uh sometimes what happens is and i i think sometimes i become a pessimist um but i guess uh since this is such an issue based struggle right now there is also a sense that uh if you want to incorporate lots of messages lots of political ideas into one struggle then it's possible that it might just fizzle away mm. if you want to focus on farmers bills and make sure that these new acts are repelled then let's focus on that and get it done with because it's important to um while it is important to acknowledge all these different struggles and find ways to come together uh the urgency of this particular issue or other issues when these struggles emerge are very issue specific struggles um so it's 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 good to see that there is so much awareness it's so much there is consciousness in people to to link these struggles together uh but these struggles are exhausting physically mentally emotionally so mm-hmm. um if there is a way to uh, bring these struggles together yes but i don't know i mean for people farmers who are protesting here in canada if you ask them about dalit farmers what would they have to say to that or how many dalit farmers are actually part of this struggle are there dalit farmers to begin with uh, caste is such a big issue are we going to deal with that too uh, and caste is such a big issue in terms of um, how farming communities operate in rural india so there are so many issues that we all are aware of um and once we start putting them all together um it's exciting but uh, in terms of what it could the movement can achieve its immediate goal i think there's a possibility of getting distracted um but i mean i am still sitting here as an academic so who am i to say anything all power to everybody well i wanted to ask you <laughs> uh yeah if i agreed all power to everybody but i i wanted to ask you actually about this caste class dynamic within the movement okay so there's this issue about can this movement reach out to other movements and make those connections let's leave that for now mm. but even within the question of agrarian political economy mm-hmm. one of the most important aspects is class dynamics mm-hmm. uh we've we've touched on that a little bit but yeah. my understanding and as you brought up dalit or mm. uh you know quote unquote untouchable or mm. lower caste outcast mm. farmers mm. uh someone was telling me that 35% of punjab's population is now dalit mm 35% that is that yeah. and and that that is the highest proportion anywhere in india right now mm which is incredible uh, and a lot yeah. of them are migrants from like bihar and mm. but but not recent migrants they they might have been longer term migrants right uh and that is aside from the migrant labor that does come from bihar up to punjab because mm. that is where they will find employment mm. so on one hand you have uh a, a far an, an already existing agricultural crisis mm. but on the other hand you have these rich farmers who mercilessly and often brutally exploit dalit farmers mm. uh and dalit workers mm. what then and, and you know so right now we might be pleased because these farmers are standing up to modi mm. and we see that nobody has stood up to them in the uh, to modi in the same way mm. but um the in terms of the dalit uh dynamic the caste dynamic within this mm. the class dynamic within within this mm. what does uh what does that look like is there cross caste and cross class solidarity or is this very much a rich farmers movement well again my this part for this part of uh, uh, the question i think my it's limited to what i've been reading so i don't have my field work experience or whatever to go back to but i'm i'm seeing instances and images of women coming out and talking about it i'm seeing instances of dalit women coming out and talking about it um and uh, farmers of all 
hues, young, old, coming out and talking about. So, so there is a possibility because, again, it's issue specific, right? So I don't know how much would a, a Dalit labor might be uh, concerned about right now what is happening in, in Kashmir right now. But they know that if the farmer with whom they work right now, if he will stop getting his minimum support price, he will tell us to, to, leave, to leave Punjab and go somewhere else because we will not have work. So as long as it remains issue specific, I think there is a possibility to fight it out. Uh, but over the larger questions, because I, I remember the, I read something a while back where uh, specifically in Sangrur, they had created some kind of a, um, uh, Sangrur in Punjab, uh, they had created some kind of a 15 acre common land ownership kind of a thing, only of Dalit farmers, Dalit um, families who were living in that village, they had got this 15 acres of land and they are growing things on their own. Uh, and their point was that we feel safe that if our daughter is going to go into the field of this common land to get fodder for the cattle, she will be safe. Now, this is in a, in a caste context where we're talking about Dalit families not having individual ownership, um, but doing things together. So whether uh, high caste, high class farmers will be able to get rid of their caste barriers and bring it all together. I think it's, that would be a very huge struggle. Um, it's, a, it's an ongoing struggle, but um, it's a desirable goal. I, like I said, I'm a pessimist. So, so I don't know how it's going to pan out. But uh, the, it's, it's, it's not possible to have to overcome these barriers. Uh, right. It requires a lot of, lot of hard work, a lot of conscious effort. So for the moment, what we have is as a, as a consequence of this particular issue, which affects all classes, all castes in different ways for sure, but it affects all of them. Yeah. As a consequence, you've got this almost unprecedented unity yeah. uh, against it. Yeah. But yeah. that doesn't get rid of contradictions. It no, suspends sure. them. No, no, no. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So let me ask you by way of conclusion, do you have concluding thoughts? And usually I ask people, if you were talking to students in third world countries, if you're talking to mm. Pakistani students or Indian students, mm. how would you encourage them to, to look at this issue? Right. I think I would first give them pointers to think about what do we mean by agrarian crisis to begin with? What is this a crisis of? And who is the one who's impacted? And I'm not talking about these laws specifically. And I think it's true for most of the third world countries that agrarian crisis is the crisis for small scale farmers not being able to reproduce themselves on a daily basis. Mm. That is the core of why we are such a poor nation. Uh, why do we have so much poverty by the end of the day? Even if we have big cities, fancy things, whatever. So what is it that is making these people who have lived on farms for, for all their lives and century or years and parents and generations before that, why can't they do what they were doing three generations back? What is prevent them, preventing them from doing that? And the moment we start posing the crisis in this format, we start questioning the politics, the economy, the political economy of why is agriculture as a sector um, uh, needs to be treated differently um, because, of the, because it is not just a, a consumer perspective, it is also a, a lifestyle, livelihood um, perspective which you cannot take away from it. Um, and the second aspect I would want to add to it is that I am not a romantic to an extent where I say that everybody should be doing agrarian, uh, should be on their farms, green fields, happiness, uh, mustard seeds. No, I'm not imagining a Yash Chopra movie by the end of the day. If it happens, great, but no, I am okay with only maybe 20% of farmers doing that, but I want that there should be a way and that only a government can do that there is a way for people to get out of the 
of the mess and the and those who have been born in the, in debt generation after generation they have a respectable way of getting out of that uh, mess um, that there be education that there be health uh, equal education equal health um, opportunities uh, that should be provided for and until that value chain is not on the table uh, you cannot have laws and acts which are going to cut short their lives so drastically